0: I'll have a full 15 Shepherd here on WOR New York, 710 on your dial. Here, says, Shepard, I'll bet you don't know who invented the doll that says Mama. Now, there's a test of cultural knowledge. You ever see a doll that says Mama? You'll never guess who invented it. I know who invented it. My life is littered with this kind of knowledge. Now, I don't remember Pearl Harbor. I don't know who won the Battle of Waterloo, but I can tell you who invented the doll that says Mama. And you would be sickened to know who it was. <laughs> oh, man. Would you believe it? It was Thomas Edison? <laughs> yeah, well, he did. Thomas Edison invented the doll that says Mama, the talking doll. And uh, can, can't you just see Edison in his, in his laboratory? You've seen pictures of Edison. You know, it looks like, uh, looks like uh, a giant He's in there, and he's got this doll, and he keeps turning it upside down. He says, it is not working yet. That would make a great, that Don Amici movie, you know, or Paul Muni. It is not working yet, but one day we will perfect it. One day. And by God, he did. Of course, uh, today dolls do a lot more than say mama. In fact, no doll actually says that anymore. You know that they're coming out with a doll for next season that takes the pill? <laughs> well, they do, you know. They went through this whole scene of, you know, dolls you got to change and all that. Do you remember a couple of years ago you could get a doll that caught scarlet fever and uh, had to be nursed back to health? It would change uh, its color and get spots all over it and blisters every six weeks, and the kid, you know, would nurse it back, and it would come back, and it would get something else like whooping cough, and you could program it for that. Uh, but the, I think the ultimate thing is the doll that... Uh, the new one. That, and by the way, they're they're coming out with a woman's lib doll for next year too. Well, it's an angry doll. You know, she's got a bullwhip in one hand and the whole bit. But uh, I I think that's fine. I think that you know inventions are are uh, you know. Speaking of inventions, uh, tonight you know here it is. It's a you know summer. It's great. Uh, everything is beginning to gel. Kind of feel good. And the other day, we were, we were working around... You know, when you're working on a television show, it's a very funny thing. Time is all balled up. You shoot a thing like six weeks or six months or even a year before, and then you put it on a screen, and there's a curious displacement of time, a dislocation of time in your gut. You know, speaking of dislocations of time, have you ever noticed... Have you ever taken any home movies? Well, anybody who's ever taken any home movie, you know, just with a movie camera, uh, you get a curious sense of unreality about what you saw once. And you may have taken, you know, the famous trip you took to Paris or wherever that was. And uh, four years later, you look at this, the the film, you look at it on a on a projector, and there's a curious contradiction as you look at it. On one hand, it it's it's familiar. On the other hand, it's alien. And you feel like somebody else took the pictures or something. Ah, It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing. You know, I, I, I one time sat in a, in a house with a, with a movie star, an ex-movie star, a famous ex-movie star, whose name you would really know. And it was midnight. It was at the tail end of a party and most everybody had left. We are all standing around in this place. Actually, not all of us. There was only about four or five of us left. And he was sitting over there on the couch, and he had a drink. And he's in another business entirely, by the way, but was a famous movie star. Well, somebody had turned the television set on hours before. You know, sometimes when you're at a party, the TV set is just going in the corner, and it just keeps going on and on, and nobody's watching it. Well, the TV set was over there going on, we're sitting around having a drink, when one of those unbelievable coincidences happen in your life. Some coincidences are good, others are not. I glance over at the set, and it is the late, late movie, which comes on after the news, it's late. And this was the second film, way late at night. It must have been 1, 1.30 o'clock, something like that. And I look over there, and my, you know, I can't believe it. There on the screen is this guy (laughs) We're sitting around having a drink with But this film was made probably 25 years before It's a strange moment And he didn't even notice it He didn't know that it was on at all He was deeply involved in conversation with somebody And this thing just came on Nobody knew it was on It was just there And I look over and it's him and it's the opening scenes of a movie that he had made roughly 25 to 30 years before. Well, I'm the only one in the room who sees this. Everybody else is mixing a drink or somebody's talking about, well, I'm going to have to go, Charlie. i got to get up in the morning. You know, it's been a great party. I'm sitting there looking at this film. Well, I had a decision to make. (laughs) Do you point out to the guy who's sitting there that he's on TV, or do you politely ignore it? Of course, the first thing that hits you is that he was almost unrecognizable, you know, after all, everybody is. I mean, uh, there's hardly anybody who looks very much like they looked, Uh, let's say, if 30 years have passed, very few people look really the way they did then. Very few people, so that's not putting anybody down. It is a fact. People just change over the years. And in addition, when you're in a movie, of course, everything is all lit beautifully, and they've got makeup and the whole thing, see. So a, a person is almost always presented in the best of conceivable lights in a movie. Well, in life, very few people have beautifully lit lives. Very few people have a, uh, have a makeup man running around them every five minutes, you know, squirting a passion into their eyes. To make sure they look right and so he's sitting over there on this couch and he was kind of tired because it was pretty late and he was planning to go and i had a decision to make and i did it i mean being a basic slob i made the decision so i said oh excuse me i said uh i said uh take a look at the tv set and he looked up and for one brief instant it was a curious moment he looked and he squinted like like he really didn't recognize himself (laughs) he squinted and he leaned forward and then he saw what it was and everybody else in the room was looking over of course now at the TV set and everybody got it at once it was him on the screen in an old classic movie by the way a movie that has been considered a classic ever since it was made it's usually presented at the Museum of Modern Art every couple of years and there he is Well, what do you think he said? What was the first thing you think came to his mind? Well, he watched very carefully. No, he just looked very carefully at it, see? No, he didn't turn it off. That's what you would think. So that Now, that's the bad writer. The bad writer would jump up and have him going over and turning it off. Not at all. He looked at the screen, and he started, he started to laugh, and a very sardonic laugh. He went... You know, he starts to laugh a bit. And none of us knew what quite to say. He he started to laugh. It was a kind of a sardonic grin. And then he said it. Oh. What a blank that chick was. Now, the word he used starts with a B. And he was referring to one of America's beloved film actresses. All he could think of was how miserable this chick was. And, I, and, and he, didn't, he didn't say, oh, wow, well, you know, time has passed. Oh, well. None of this usual jazz. He said, oh, wow, well, I could kill her. Well, I turned to him and I said, what do you mean? He said, now watch what she does here. Now watch, watch. He says the scene is about, and he ma- named the character he was playing. He didn't even refer to himself. He said, the scene is about, let's say, uh, uh, Lord Fauntleroy. He said, now, the scene is about Lord Fauntleroy has just received a message that he is, uh, his father is dying and he has to go to see him right now. Now, watch. Watch what she does. And all of us were watching. See, with fascination. He said, just watch. And sure enough, the chick, what do you think she did? Right in the middle of this dramatic moment, and she's a little bit off camera. You can see her behind. She reaches up and very carefully and very ostentatiously begins to adjust her earring. She's doing everything she can to steal the seed. He says, there you go. He says, where do you see the next seed now? All right. Well, all, we sat there through the entire movie, and it was a fascinating experience. We sat through the entire movie. Now, this guy had made this film about 30 years before, right? And uh, you would think that there would be details that he would be hazy on. Not a bit. All through the entire film, we sat and watched the film... And he carefully explained before every scene what uh, you're going to see in the next scene and why it didn't quite come off or why it did come off. And he explained every, he, says, now, now you see, he says, now, look, look, you see that settee over on the side there? He said, now, you see that He And sure, you look over there and you see a settee over there. He says, "You know that settee." He says, "They argued for three weeks about whether they're going to have that settee." He says, "I got so tired of hearing about that damn settee." He says, "I said, why don't we cut the scene?" He says, and then this this designer went screaming off the set and he was crying. His mother had to come and he said, <laughs> "So here you can imagine this designer." "Well, if you don't put that settee, I designed this set," and he says, he's crying. He says, finally, uh, the production chief had to come down himself. They brought his mother down. There. He says, now, where do you see the next one? He says, no. no. All, right, all, right, all right, here it comes. He says, now, now, keep an eye on that horse there. <laughs> he says, keep an eye on that horse. So we're all sitting there watching the horse. He says, watch what it does now. Keep an eye on that horse. He says, you see what it's doing? Look, look, it keeps going sideways. He says, that horse kept moving sideways. He says, and I'm talking. He says, it looks like I'm talking to uh, X. He says, no, I was talking to the camera. He says, X was in Acapulco then. We were shooting what we call a blank scene where I'm supposed to be playing the camera. He says, but that damn horse kept moving sideways. Look at, look at my eyes, see? He says, I told him to cut that scene. He's, that scene bothers me every time I see it. Well, we went through this whole thing, and it, and it, and it suddenly hit me. You know, this guy was not, to, he didn't see this thing as part of his life that he had lived through. He didn't look at it and say, gee, wasn't I a beautiful... Look, look at how beautiful I was then. Nothing at all like that. He was looking at it completely dispassionately. At no point did he say, oh, the lost and gone days. Ah, oh, nothing. Not a bit of it. He's just sitting there watching. Well, it, it, uh, it hit me that there's going to be large numbers of people who, you know, in, in future, because with all the movie cameras that are around... Their lives are going to be totally unreal. They're going to be films instead of lives. <laughs> films instead. I think it. I I think in the future. It's it's hit me some often. You know, it's hit me. I think in the future. Can you imagine some archaeologist in the year four thousand nine hundred and twenty-eight uncovering all the billions of slides that people have shot? Of their lives. This is probably the most recorded age in, in the history of mankind, and and hardly any of the real stuff is recorded. It's always Aunt Emily on the back porch at the you know at the birthday party, and uh, <laughs> this kind of stuff. It's just going to be billions and billions and billions. Can't you imagine in the in the year four thousand nine hundred ninety, they have a special uh, hall of twentieth century trivia, where people can come and examine. What it was like in our time, and uh, millions of people slides, and you never know what's going to what's going to be preserved. I mean, some of your worst stuff is liable to be preserved. Some of your worst moments. Well, I was the other day. I'm working on this TV show, see, that, that, which we have been shooting for all summer, back in the past. And by the way, if you have not seen it, uh, it is on tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on Channel 13. And I'll point out, it's widely <laughs> argued about among critics. One hand, you get the wildly applauding critic, and the other one says, "I wish he'd done a radio show," you know. But uh, so that's uh, if you want, if you're curious, see it on 13 tomorrow night. However, we were working. Now, Matt, ready in there? We were working, and and I think, hold it, I'll give you the cue. I think nothing brings back a whole rush of experiences more than sound. I think sound does it more than pictures. I think every one of you can, can, can remember the smell of how school smelled, no matter how long ago it was that you were in school. Have you ever forgotten the smell of a gym? You know that smell when you went into the gym in school? It has a specific smell, like nothing else. It smells like a gym. It doesn't make any difference, any difference whether it's the girls' gym or the boys' gym. It smells like a gym. Now, what it is that makes that smell, I don't know. Now, it isn't the smell necessarily of athletics, because I have been in dressing rooms, like uh, the Yankee dressing room doesn't smell like a gym. smells like the Yankee dressing room, not like a gym. Because I guess in the gym, there's the vague, vague essence of chalk dust, too, which you don't get in the Yankee dressing room. There's uh, elderly fermented lunches from the cafeteria have mingled there. And so it's a smell. Well, sounds are like that. And, and here is a sound that that, we were, that that we were playing with the other day, a sound just like this. We were playing around, trying to, to, to match it to a, a, an image that was on the screen. And all of a sudden, they brought it all back. Listen to this. Listen to this. (laughs) Listen to that sound. Yeah, reset it, man. Reset it. Now, that sound is the sound of a really powerful diesel locomotive. I mean really laying it out. And all of a sudden it all came back. You might remember a show I did last summer about a trip that we took uh, in uh, filming our show. We took this trip from Chicago all the way west on the city of Los Angeles, this great Union Pacific train, which is no more. We took the last trip well, we traveled ahead then. We got off at one place. I don't think I explained one thing that we did. I always remember it. We traveled ahead at one point in the trip. We left the train and traveled ahead of it. So we, we, we'd, we'd meet the train at a certain point. And we set up our equipment. And we met the train coming into... It was most fin- Talk about dramatics. It was in the, in echo chamber... Or rather, in Echo Canyon. Have you ever heard of Echo Canyon? Echo Canyon, which is a very famous canyon out in the West, and uh, it's in fact many, many films have been shot in Echo Canyon. Many westerns have been shot. You know, it's funny when you when you travel in certain parts of the West and you're you're uh, you're moving around uh, doing things like we were shooting a a, a taped TV show. When you move around, you see things that have a curious Familiarity, and you can't pinpoint it. And then it hits you. Yeah, I've seen it in a thousand John Wayne movies. Just a rock, or the way a trail goes, the way a cliff rises. That so many movies are shot in specific areas. Now, uh, Echo Canyon is a very strange place. And it, it, is a, it is a cut way deep in the Rockies, a tremendous cut. And, of course, they call it Echo Canyon for the obvious reason, you know. And uh, these tracks go right through it. It makes a great big... The train makes a great big right-hand sweeping turn as it comes into this Echo Canyon. And it just sort of drifts on up on either side of you, tremendous cliffs going on up. And we set up our camera there at this turn. Absolutely not a sound anywhere. And we were all alone, just us, the five of us. And the. Fifth member of our little group, there's only four of us that actually shot this thing. The fifth member was a man from the Union Pacific who was from the traffic office of the Union Pacific, and he had a two way radio. Just a little tiny walkie talkie, and, and he, he was getting reports along the tracks as to where the train was. And they would call up. You'd hear this. I <laughs> and he he'd say something into this thing and they were telling him as the train was approaching well, we couldn't see a damn thing it was nothing but this magnificent blue sky over us and it was a it was a crisp uh, almost a transparent day you know the kind of day that you have a feeling that if you hold your hand up in front of your face between your face and the sun you can see the bones of your hand it was a brilliant day and there were great uh, uh, the wind was blowing They had high kind of uh, golden weeds all around us. I I didn't even, uh, I don't remember what exactly they were, but the strange kind of high weeds. It looked a little like wild rice, which it wasn't, but it looked that way, just waving back and forth. And there was nothing there except this track, the Union Pacific track and this tremendous canyon and dark red and yellow and orange rocks stretching all the way to the sky. Well, I remembered an old trek, And this is a trick that you've seen done in Western movies. But, you know, we used to do it when I was a kid. You know, we had a a railroad track that ran past about oh, a quarter of a mile past our house. A Tremendous railroad set up out there. Of course, in northern Indiana, all the trains come through the northern Indiana area that go into Chicago. So we had trains crisscrossing our area like uh, spider webs. And so we would go back once in a while to the tracks, and we'd look for spikes and stuff like that that would come out, you know, and just walk along the tracks. And uh, once in a while, in the summertime, we would put our ear down to the rail. You know that if you put your ear to the rail of a, of a long-distance train, these, these, rails, are, these uh, rails are very uh, tightly uh, welded and connected together, yet they, are, they, they have a, uh, a spring action, see, so they don't break. But if you put your ear to the track, absolutely lay it flat on the track, just like your head is lying on the track... You can hear a train coming for many, many miles. Did you know that? You hear a low rumble, and uh, you, you can just hear it coming. You just know there's a train coming. Uh, by the way, this is the way that the that the train robbers, guys like Jesse James and these people, this is a little technical trick in case you're going to rob a train. Back in those days, they didn't have schedules like we have, you know. Uh, so he couldn't get out the uh, you know the New Haven schedule, It's still here at 5:22. And, uh, you know, hit it when she went past. Of course, that would be ridiculous. If he's on the New Haven, he'd have to say, do it at 522. Well, we'll hit it about 730. Uh, That's when she's past. But uh, out there, these guys, there was no way of knowing. See, the train may come almost any time because it used to get uh, stopped by washouts and who knows what, see? So they would camp by the side of the road, ra- uh, right by the side of the road. They literally camped there, you see. And they're, they're making coffee and fooling around. They know that the train is going to come sometime today. And so they would put a, a, a lookout who would merely spend an hour or two with his ear down to the rail. That's all. He's just sitting there listening. The other guys are eating and walking around and kicking their horses and loading their guns and, you know, doing what bad guys do, you know, uh, breaking in a new mask, that kind of stuff. And so they're waiting. Well, then when he would hear the first sound that may come in the afternoon, and they would take, char- take turns, it was just guy and watch. The minute he heard that first faint distant rumble they'd break camp and they'd go up into the woods around the place where they were going to hit the train usually they hit him at a curve now you know why they hit the train at a curve it's obvious a train has to slow up at a curve and uh, if they, if you hit him on the straight and he comes hell bent for election, you know he's going wide open well it's pretty hard to run up and say stop or I shoot you know and he's going 700 miles an hour and your horse is heaving so uh, this this is a, a technical error that a lot of movies show. You know, they'll show this train going over this beautiful prairie, and they'll show these guys galloping it. They never really did it that way. Uh, that's for the birds. The way they did it, they'd hit it at a, at, a, at a place where there was a turn, just like Echo Canyon. And by the way, the very canyon where we were shooting had been the scene of at least seven famous train robberies early in the days of the West. So it was a historic canyon. And uh, this baby was, you, you know, just moving towards us. And, of course, when, when the, they, they'd hear the train coming, these guys, you know, the Jesse James or whoever it was, uh, they'd hear these trains coming, and they would break camp, they would go up into the hills. And when this train is slowly moving the, uh, around this turn, and especially those early trains, remember these early trains had very high centers of gravity, uh, and, and uh, they were narrower, somewhat narrower in gauge, which meant they couldn't take a turn as fast as the contemporary train. So uh, he'd, he'd slow up, really slow, maybe 5, 10 miles an hour. Well, there was no, no trick at all to come down and, you know, hop on the cab and plug the engineer, and you got business going. Well, here we are, I see, our little crew. We're, we're uh, crouched down there waiting for this train to appear. And I said, I, I said to, the, uh, to the guy from the Union Pacific, I, you know, he's getting all these reports. I says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try some. He says, okay. So I go over and I put my ear down on this, this rails, and he laughed. <laughs> you know, he had a better system He had a, he had a walkie-talkie with a 50-mile radius see? So, sure enough, all of a sudden I hear this low Almost imperceptible rumble, a low rumble uh, You know, you could just hear this low, static rati- a racket coming Which reminds me, this is WOR, New York I can hear this low racket And then from the way off in the distance Way off, way off Just real faint man. No, way, way faint, faint. As, as low as you can get it. Real low. Way, even lower than that. Just set it back now. And, 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 and see if you can make that thing barely perceptible. Let's see how, how low we can make this thing technically. It was so faint, we heard this faint sound of a diesel locomotive. Just way off. And then it faded out, faded out. You could just hear that faint whistle. Well, this canyon, you see, now the point I'm trying to make here is this canyon had a curious funnel effect on it. So that this sound, which was like 25 miles away, if you were out on either side of the canyon, you never hear it. But this thing caught this sound like a great parabola. And it just funneled it down and we could hear this faint sound. I said, how far is it? And he said, well, it's uh, at number six and six, you know, they have these section numbers and all that. I said, well, how far is that? He said, well, it's about 36, 37 miles away. I said, you mean we could hear that whistle that far? He said, no, no, he says, it, it, it catches in the air. He says, you know, this is thousands of feet high. This thing's like a tremendous ear. It's like a big sound uh, parabola. And it hit me, see, when we recorded this. We thought the train was going to come right out. You know, obviously, it was miles away. Well, when that baby came around, I want to tell you, it was a, one of the most dramatic scenes that I've ever seen. All of a sudden, around the corner, she hit, let out a big blast. And she just went roaring, pat, <laughs> wow. It was the Union Pacific, man, with all stops pulled and going full out. Well, we caught it, and uh, he just he just sort of First, he came right at us and made a big turn, and then he roared past. We were not more than, uh, oh, I would say not more than 10 feet away from the side of the train. We had to get special permission to get that close to it because it's dangerous, you know. And uh, we were about 10 feet from the side of the train. She was going full out. I'd say she was going at that point. He, he began to pick up steam when he, uh, speed when he came around. He boomed that thing on, and he was going close to 90 you ever stood next to a, a, a major train when she's hitting around 90 miles an hour with all things going? Man, you can feel your gut being... It, it, it's, it's like you're, 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 the, the visceral hit of that thing. The sound is so overpowering. There's no way to record the sound. In fact, all of our equipment was overloaded, just completely. We had done everything we could, but the volume of sound and the complexity of the sound, Matt, You know, because there's highs in there, there's lows, there's everything in there, was so overpowering that every needle we had was up against the pin. Every needle. Speaking of uh, putting the needle up against the pin, turn it up, Matt. (laughs) Hey, you know, uh, speaking of uh, pork sausage, uh, I uh, must make this uh, special announcement. I have a story in the current Playboy. The current one, the one that just came out on the the newsstand. And any of you guys who are in the Army will dig it. What's that? Uh, It's in the current issue. Uh, Just got on the newsstand. And uh, it's Playboy, so get out and pick it up. What's that? Yeah, it's the May issue. May, May. That just came out, you know. May. They're always about a month or so in advance. So it's in the May issue. And I'm giving you warning enough time because, you know, last month, the last time I had a piece... I got a lot of angry letters from people who complained that I had mentioned that it was in the magazine, but it was too late to get it. You know, the newsstand copies sell out fairly fast of that magazine. So if you want a copy, it's in the May issue, the current issue, and it's a there's a beautiful illustration he did for that. So did you see that illustration, Jerry? It really really caught that curious <laughs> curious seed. You know, speaking of trains, I don't know whether you saw it. Did you see the piece uh, the other day? Uh, Because I I love trains. I think everybody secretly does. And, you know, it's funny. I think think there there was a period when people fell in love with other forms of transportation. I think people always do this. I think when anything new comes along, I mean big new. When I say big, I'm talking about really large in the sense of... uh, a technological revolution in a certain area, people fall madly in love with it. And they get rid of anything else. And uh, when they get rid of that thing, they, uh, they believe it's now disappeared. Well, a later generation comes and rediscovers the earlier thing. Now, I'll give you examples of this. That, uh, that almost every person today who is, uh, let's say, upper-middle-aged was young when television first came out. And it was a fantastic experience. And he immediately threw all his radios away. <laughs> that was the end of it. He threw them all away. And, and, and uh, he's totally, and still is, he's not listening tonight. He's still totally in love with this new thing. Well, along came another generation that discovered radio in a completely different context. That's why so many millions of kids listen to radio, and the old man never hears it. I'm continually meeting grown-up types who say, "Well, my kid listen He never hears it. You know, he's he's down there watching a 1932 Priscilla Lane movie with his jaw hanging slack. You know, he just can't help turn that box on because he's in love with it, and and uh, to him, anything else is uh, is secondary. See, well, if if you grow up with a thing, you don't have the imp- you're not impressed by it really. And so the kids that grew up with TV, you know, they had TV from the time they were, it was there before they were born. That's no more exciting to them than a faucet, <laughs> you know, something like that. It's like old duffers uh, who, who, who lived in a farm when they had to go out and pump water. Well, the minute they brought in water that poured out of a faucet, they were fantastically in love with it. Well, as the people came later, they just turned the water around and they not think anything about it. But you'd be surprised, the number of people who are out in farms are still impressed by the idea that they can turn on a, a little thing and water comes out and nobody has to pump it or carry buckets. Well, I think this was true of radio. I also think it's true of trains. You know that I get a much bigger response on the train shows that I do from kids than I do from other people because the kid has... They've rediscovered the trains, particularly the hip element of kids. They love the idea of traveling. You notice how many uh, songs, for example, uh, C&W songs and, and a lot of rock stuff, involve trains. Well, because the train is, a, is, is, such, a, is such an exciting concept. But to the people who, uh, who suddenly discovered a jet flying in that, they're still in love with it. See, to them, the idea of jet flying is, is the ultimate in travel. And so th- this is part of the, of the uh, I think, the generation gap about the SST. The older generation still is in love with the idea of a jet plane flying somewhere, and he would do anything to make bigger, faster, uh, more sensational jet planes, whereas the kid gets very excited about the idea of taking a cross-country train ride. The old man doesn't see anything in it. <laughs> he just doesn't. So, uh, so y- y- let's take even other things. Let's take lights now. Have you noticed that among the young, candles are making a tremendous comeback? Well, now, uh, it would be very hard to sell... And even kerosene lamps! It would be very hard to sell a candle to a guy who grew up on a farm where they had a kerosene lamp all the time. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know he, he likes the idea of having a three-way lamp that lights up and has purple bulbs on it and, you know, glows all over the place. And, and so uh, the, we go through these phases uh, where people, people constantly reject their own lives, in a sense, for something new, and other people come along and discover it. It's a whole new thing. Uh, now, now, here, here it, it, it even involves geography. Let's take Geography. That there was a time when uh, every college graduate, his idea of the fantastic summer, the thing he dreamed of all his life, was to spend a summer in Europe. This was the uh, bicycle, that was the whole thing, bicycling through Europe. You know How many times you heard that? Oh, well, I'm taking a bike through Europe, you know, bicycle trip to Europe. That's not current today. That, that, that's another generation. That every, every kid today wants to somehow, when he takes his summer, he wants to spend it in, uh, uh, like Cheyenne, Wyoming. He wants to spend it in Taos, New Mexico. He wants, to, uh, he wants to spend it in a place like Pueblo, Colorado. And you see them hitchhiking all over the place during the summer, going to these places where their mother and father, you know, busted their you-know-what to take that bicycle trip through Belgium. See, he didn't see. In, the, in those days, America was nothing. You didn't think in terms. You know, if you were really cultured, you were really with it. You went and looked at Paris. Well, today, uh, the, the withered types have discovered the land of America. And so this is part of that generation gap, you know. The the old man can't say, well, what do you mean? I'm ready to send you all the way. Why, you mean to tell me you don't want to go uh, take the trip to uh, Belgium and France? Why, for crying out loud, what kind of a uh, ingratitude is this? Because, no, no, I want to get a hunt, and I want to go to Kansas. Kansas, for God's sakes, Kansas. Well, it goes on and on. And uh, it's just like, oh, uh, one more thing. This is going to discourage Mr. McLuhan. In spite of what Mr. McLuhan said, he was wrong. Totally and irrevocably wrong. That practically everybody under 30 has rediscovered print. Now, you don't think so. You should see the proliferation of the underground newspapers, friend. They're all printed. (laughs) And and, uh, McLuhan made, you know, he tried to say the print would... Well, that's because he's, uh, as as the French would say, he's of a certain age. Uh, He's still in love with TV, say. He didn't foresee the fact that a lot of people to, to this uh, television is just a thing you turn on in the corner like, you know, you turn on a heater. Well, print has become... I get more comments from kids about my stories in Playboy or the stuff that I write for Car and Driver than anybody over 30 ever writes. They're the ones that have, you know, no print. They don't read anymore. But uh, So it's a, it's a whole thing. By the way, speaking of trains, did you see the piece... Uh, that that came out on the Associated Press the other day about what the federal government is doing about trains? Well, listen to this. The federal government is backing research now at this moment on a passenger train that would travel up to 1,000 miles an hour through a tube containing thin air at minus 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know what? <laughs> Wait a minute now. That's that's a that's a fantastic concept. Think about this for a minute. Uh, that means a thousand miles an hour through a tube in a vacuum, practically a vacuum. See, a thin air. They mean a vacuum, which would reduce air resistance and all that. And of course, the reason that they have it 450 degrees is obvious too. Uh, and so, can you imagine 450 degrees minus? Remember, that's way down there, friend that when this thing whistles through that tube, that means that you would be in Chicago in about 45 to 50 minutes. Whap! Uh, I don't know what kind of scenery you'd see. (laughs) I don't think you'd see much scenery. They probably, they would be, you know what I guess they would do? They'd have have screens and this thing, see, and flash old type scenery on it, you know, that's filmed. It's not the real thing, because after all, you know, they're inside of a tube. What this sounds like is a super subway. It sounds like they're working on an idea of creating a uh, cross-country, transcontinental subway. Now, this tube would be underground, I presume. They don't say that. Do you want to hear more about it? It's a fantastic concept. A a, uh, Department of Transportation grant to determine the feasibility of such a system was recently announced by the Stanford Research Institute in California, which is working on the project. An institute spokesman says this marks the first time the federal government has taken a financial interest in research on the concept, which has been studied in the United States and Japan for several years, in other words, studied privately. The object, now here it is, the objective is a pressurized train. The train itself is pressurized. You know, when you're inside of it, it has a special atmosphere that would roll on rubber tires till it reached 50 miles an hour in a tube where a partial vacuum had been established to minimize air resistance. Then the vehicle would be lifted off the ground by magnetic forces and would whiz silently through the thin air of the tube, not touching any of the sides of the tube itself. Magnets spaced the length of the train, would interact with opposing magnetic forces in an aluminum guide strip to lift the cars about a foot above the guideway and keep them centered in the thin vacuum tube. It's a Fantastic idea. The 500-foot-long test guideway nearing complete, actually building one, listen to this. The 500-foot-long test guideway nearing completion at the Institute's headquarters in Menlo Park, California, will be used for testing a 150th scale model after at least a year's work on a feasibility study. In other words, they've got to do all these studies to determine it. The Federal Railroad Administration wants the wants study to aim at a safe, smooth, quiet, pollution-free ride. Now uh, you want to hear a little more technical thing about how they're going to make it go. The method of propelling the trains and the ways of achieving temperatures near absolute zero to make the magnets superconductive will be two areas of study. They're not sure yet. Jet engines, rocket motors, other driving forces have been considered, but researchers say they favor. Listen to this one. They favor a linear induction motor using the same electrical forces that hold the train suspended in the air to pull it forward. Quote, this is, we're quoting one of the scientists, a, f- a phase on an aluminum thrust rail, like the third rail of a subway, pushes a corresponding phase on the vehicle to move it, something like a surfer's board moves as it catches each wave, says Dr. Arya Samuel of the Stanford, Stanford facility. Liquid helium either liquefied aboard the train or from stations along the route would be used to attain the desired low temperatures. Fantastic concept. That's like taking a giant subway. And it's really not so far-fetched. You know, if this thing goes 1,000 miles an hour, that means if you got on it, say, at Times Square, you could be in Chicago at about the same time that it takes to go on the subway from uh, Times Square to the Bronx. Roughly 40, 45 minutes, you know, way up there uh, near uh, Pelham Parkway or someplace like it takes about that time to get up there. This thing just—you could take a subway ride out to see your aunt Min for supper, <laughs> and, and you know, really, it's fantastic. You realize what this would cause? It would—it would genuinely revolution, really revolutionize the country again. It'd be a whole, and and of course, a lot of people would complain bitterly about it. See, when it's being done. But it would revolutionize the, I think, one, for one thing, it would practically do away with turnpikes. Now, think about it for a minute, you know. There would be very little point in, in, in driving your car to Philadelphia, which is how long from here. It's 80 miles or so from here through the turnpike. When, when, uh, when at that speed, at about 1,000 miles you you get in Philadelphia in about 12 minutes. You get in this thing and zap... There you are, you know, right in the middle of, uh, you know, the city of, uh, what is it they've got there, love? <laughs> and you, it would be very hard to convince yourself that you should drive all those hours, uh, you know, all that times of the traffic and through the Holland Tunnel. Well, you could be there in Philadelphia quicker than it would take you to get from one end of the Holland Tunnel to the other in your car in normal traffic. That's how quick it would take. Now, that's what they're studying. You know, I... I uh, you know, trains, uh, trains are interesting anyway. I, I think the most fascinating train ride I ever took was, although I love the train, uh, the, the great trip across the country uh, in the Union Pacific, and uh, if, you ever, if you ever get a chance to do it, do it, friend. The, uh, one of the wildest train rides I ever took, and I think so many people miss the experience when they go to Europe. You want to talk about Europe. One of the great train rides I ever took in my life was, uh, was a train ride I took one day. I was in Amsterdam. Now, it wasn't the, the, the scenery or anything that made it great. It was the curious train. You know, all over Amsterdam, and in fact, all over Holland, large parts of Europe, they have tremendous interurban electrical trains that are, are fast and have all kinds of little uh, curious customs on them. Uh, for example, on this this uh, Dutch train, and I just went down to the train station. I didn't know anything about where it was going. I didn't have any, any, uh, which makes it even more interesting. See, I didn't have a, a destination. So I went down to the main train station in Amsterdam, and they had a tremendous lit-up board with all these unbelievable Dutch names, you know. Almost all Dutch names are unpronounceable to the non-Dutch tongue. You just can't really pronounce them. But you know that during, the, during World War II, the way the Dutch could uh, could uh, detect underground Nazi agents was that they couldn't pronounce the name of the Dutch airport. There was no way for a German to really pronounce it correctly. And I I, I was over there, you know, for some time. I talked to a lot of Dutch, and I never could get it. Something like, <laughs> It's uh, got a curious... It's like, uh, you know, like you're... <laughs> you're having a little problem with your throat, but at the same time you're trying to say something and you can't quite say it and it comes out, scriffle. <laughs> so don't write me angrily and tell me uh, that I didn't pronounce it correctly. I know I didn't pronounce it correctly. And I'm going to point out either did you, unless you're Dutch. You may think you're pronouncing it right, but you're really not. And uh, so here I am. I'm looking at this fantastic uh, collection of strange names. Well, I picked the wildest-looking one. I had about nine different V's and A and K's and all kinds of stuff, and I said, "I want to take it there." Well, oh, yeah. Well, you, of course. <laughs> so, you know, they, they always stamp things in Europe, and he's got this big stamp. And it, in fact, bureaucracy is so big in Europe that there are some people today now whose family goes back three, four, ten generations of bureaucrats, and their hand, their right hand, has uh, assumed the shape of a stamp handle. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, you know, it's uh, the, we're, we're, it's like a Richard Artery, you know, I, a man will create it. So here you get this great hand that is built for holding a stamp. So, <laughs> well, there you go, there you he go. He's stamping it away there, and he gives me my ticket, which came out to be about three feet long, and I gave him the Dutch money, and I asked him when it was going to be there at the train, you know, what time. And he says, what time to go. So I waited, and sure enough, a whole crowd got down on this track, and a train backed in. And I just found myself up in the crowd. Uh, no tourists take this train. It was a, it was a, you know like a, like if you imagine a bunch of tourists taking a train to White Plains or something. So, uh, <laughs> I just got in the crowd, and it was a nighttime rush. Now, how how would you think that the that the uh, that the suburban rush hour would be, of uh, all these suburbanites leaving uh, leaving Amsterdam to go back to their little homes out in these towns all along the way? Well i i got into this crowd and we we formed up and we moved into these cars well i i didn't know anything about the idea that you buy different classes of tickets well i had bought this particular class of tickets so i went into this car where i was supposed to sit and i sat down and here we are there's four of us facing each other it's a it's a curious feeling it's uh because you know in, in american trains most people don't want to look each other in the eye for some reason, or other. There's a great attempt to, to look the other way all the time. You don't catch anybody's eye. But here, you can't help it. So we're all sitting, facing each other. I'm sitting next to a Dutch guy who's got a derby hat and a briefcase. And uh, opposite me is a Dutch lady, a big, fat Dutch lady. And next to her is her little, skinny husband. We're all sitting there facing each other. And between us is a table, which they have... which folds down. They fold this table down. We sit there. Well... I, I look off to my right where the window was, and I see chain to the window. There's a chain comes down with about nine different chains coming off of it, like a hand. Uh, if you can imagine about nine different leashes of a dog uh, attached to one leash that goes up to the wall. Well, with that, I, I just see it goes down, to, sort of it looked like it went down to the floor. Well, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was an emergency whistle or something. So I did, I'm sitting there, and great big windows. The one thing they have in these trains is unbelievable windows. The windows were, were, gee, they looked like they were about seven feet high. Big picture windows all the way down to your waist. And you could just sit there and watch the countryside rolling by, which is beautiful. You could see the North Sea out there and the dikes and the little towns. Well, the lady said something in Dutch to her husband. He reaches down and he starts pulling on a chain. I said, what the hell? You know, figure, what are they going to do here? He pulls on the chain and all of a sudden up comes this great big collection of chains, and at the end of each chain is a magazine that is attached to the chain. With that, he pulls it up like that and lays it out on the table now. There's, that, that means there are five or six magazines that are chained to the wall of the car. And so with that, all the passengers start reading the magazine. <laughs> In other words, magazines are provided for you to read on, on the Dutch train. Isn't that a nice little... Uh, little touch, and they're all contemporary, uh, up-to-the-date, up-to-the-minute magazines. You know, the Dutch equivalent of Life and Time and Newsweek and all this stuff, and Business Week, and, and uh, everybody's sitting there. And I, so I got, I got what was left, and uh, this is something I will never understand about Europe. I got this magazine that was about lady wrestlers. Now, that's, uh, I, of course, I couldn't read a word of Dutch, but there was just a lot of pictures of lady wrestlers in this magazine. Now, I, I sat there and, and looked at this thing, see, and, and the four of us were sitting, and then they, they came along and they took the tickets, and we were rolling through the countryside, and these little Dutch towns, one after the other, rolling by, and they're sort of flat fronted The Dutch towns have these have these hundreds of little houses all standing neat and clean and each one has a window in it with a with a, with a flower in it. This was springtime by the way. They, every last one had a potted plant right in the window. Usually a tulip, but almost all of them were in bloom. You can just see right sitting in the middle. And they have uh, lace lace windows and the fronts of the of, of the places are just flat and alongside the train as we went, I'm looking out of course watching, digging the whole scene, Alongside the train is a narrow pathway, right alongside, exactly alongside the train, not not more than ten, fifteen feet away from it, and on the pathway was the Long Island Expressway of the bicycle world. With about twelve billion bicycles. Everybody's going along like that, along the train, see. We're the rich ones, we're in the train and they're going along on their bikes. Thousands and thousands of people are coming home on the rush hour from their bikes, see? Well, I'm riding along, watching this scene, and uh, I just thought to myself, "Geez, what a what a great what a great uh, picture of a of a totally different society from our society." As you know, there's like any society, there's good and there's bad in it. So don't assume that I'm just sitting here saying, "Oh, how groovy it is in in Holland." There's bad and good in every society, but this just happened to be an image. And this train rolled along, boy, like it was on uh, like it was rolling on wheels made of oleo Oh, it was smooth, and just rolled on. It had a slow rumble on it. It was an electrical tray, clean as a pin. And I'm sitting there looking at my lady wrestlers, and uh, I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching the, I'm watching the bicycle riders. And finally, I got to the town where I was to get off. I could tell because you know the sign came up, and I saw this big town was way out. So I got off with about twenty-five other guys that looked like uh, commuters, and they all got off at the platform. And I got off myself, saying, I walked down the main street of this town. Just walked down. I, 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 at this point, I don't even remember the name. If I saw a map, maybe I could remember it. And I just walked down the main street of the town, and it was kind of nice. It was maybe 6.30 now, and it was getting uh, that gray, curious North Sea light that Holland gets. And everybody was going home for supper, and I could see all the little houses all lit up for supper time and guys going in and out of the stores. And so I walked into a place where they had a coffee shop, you know, a little coffee house, and I sat down. They spoke no English in this coffee house. And uh, there was a big sign, a poster. The Dutch go great for posters. A big poster that showed a big pot that was steaming. And I just pointed at it. And she said, "Oh, she nods." And I said, "She said uh, something." I says, ein, ein, meaning one. ein tasse." And she she brings me a big cup. I figure I'm going to going get coffee, see. And uh, she brings me this little pot with a great big white porcelain cup, and it was on a on a saucer, and around the saucer were about five little Dutch cookies, and in the in the cup was filled with the most unbelievable hot chocolate I've ever had in my life. The Dutch Turnout Hot Chocolate, believe me, it uh, it would break every Weight Watchers Club in America. One sniff of it. So I sat there, sipping my hot chocolate, eating my Dutch cookies, and watched another load of Dutch commuters get off the next train and hurry down the street with their briefcases. It was getting quietly dark. And it was just a great train ride. About an hour later, I caught the next train going back and rode back to Amsterdam. This time, I'm looking out the other side of the track, which went along a canal with all these barges moving quietly in the dusk. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices.